0: <clears throat> Thank you a lot. When I say turn me on, I mean turn on the machine. Uh, I am already on. Robert Descan and Cliff Vogel got me going this morning, and so they got me riled up. So now I'm really riled up, ready to teach. Amen? Well, good to see you this morning. This morning we are, we are in lesson number six. This is a six-week I say that for Luke Sacco, just letting know what week we're in. This is week number six. By the way, let me say this in general before getting into the material. I really understand that what we're doing in a compressed way is moving very quickly through some of the deepest water you'll ever swim in in the Bible. And if you've ever been in ankle-deep water, you can move pretty quickly. But once you get up to about your chest, you know how difficult it is to move quickly through water. But we do believe, I do believe, this is the Lord's way of presenting this time, this material. But in a general sense, here's what my hope is and here's what my concern is. My concern is that we're going to go through so much that you're not going to get a lot of it, therefore just let it go. My hope is that as we go through this, we're going to go through so much that it's going to whet your appetite. And so when you do go back to studying Romans or maybe even some of the other epistles, you will remember this or go back to notes, study, get refreshed, get a CD or whatever it is, and this would apply to you in this class, to our sermon material, whatever. Because let's face it, as I was just sharing with the two brothers over there who provoked me, (laughs) the sharing and the ministry of the Word of God is the central way God announces Himself, calls us, ministers to us, saves us, sanctifies us, secures us, and keeps us all the way to heaven. Amen? It is the ministry of the Word of God. And so we we're going to, you know, this morning especially, ah, uh, there's so much here. Hang on. But let this class be a motivation thing to go back and to study on your own and to look at the word and to slow down and to read and to think and sit and meditate and let you just Soak in, absorb what God is saying, right? Let's do it that way. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So remember last week that we saw that God justifies the guilty, those who are unrighteous. And remember, the entire issue with God as to our standing, or lack of standing before Him is not as a result of what we do, it is not the result of our morality, so to speak. Morality meaning what we think we need to do to do better and we're going to try, whatever. Our entire standing before God has to do with who He is. May I emphasize that one more time? Our entire standing before God is not based in anything of or about ourselves. It is completely, comprehensively, forever based in who He is in Himself. And who is He? He is righteous in himself. This is the aspect that Paul is accentuating in Romans. There are other aspects or attributes or emphases about God that will be emphasized in other epistles and other areas, but this is the one that Paul chooses to emphasize in Romans. And so let's make sure that when we listen to this material this morning and we go through it as quickly and slowly as I can, let's not take it and make it out there for them, those, and whatever. But let's make sure that we are seeing ourselves in this. That we are seeing our life in Christ, not based in anything about who we are or what we have done or what we continue to do, but based completely in and continually being based completely in who. God is in himself. And let's allow the Holy Spirit as we go through this word to begin to disabuse us, to break us, to disconnect us from the thought that we have to be moral in some area or another in order to merit or win or maintain or be ingratiated to or to move or do whatever with God. That basis Is not there. Therefore, what about obedience? Well, we'll get to that in two weeks. But let's make sure that we are being unshackled by the requirement to do or to be a particular way in order to receive from God, in order to be meriting something with God. In order to be more loved by God and accepted by God? Can we allow some of this today to further break us of this so that we can be those whom God through Christ has genuinely set free? Amen? Can we be that today? So that's very much I think at what the heart of what God wants to talk about in these verses. There's going to be a lot of stuff here. What does it mean? It, what it means mostly for me is and for you is we are not required to do any particular work of merit because God in Christ has done it all. Thank you. God in Christ, what? How much? How much is all? And if He's done it all, what am I trying to do? I'm trying to take it back. I'm trying to disbelieve. He's done it all. So, Lord, let me get going on this. <laughs> so this morning we've already talked about God justifies the guilty, those who are unrighteous through the death of Christ as His free gift to them received by faith. That's what we saw last week. Remember in verses 21 to 26 of Romans. Remember we saw that. So this morning we continue picking it up, chapter 3, verse 27, and we move all the way through to chapter, uh, verse 25 and chapter 4. So this morning, what we're going to look at very quickly are the examples of Abraham and David as Paul's scriptural proof for what he's saying. Because what Paul is saying here is audacious. What he is saying here is absolutely scandalous to the religious mind of people. This is a scandal, and it continues to be a scandal, and we will see some of the scandal as we move through, especially when we get to chapter 6 and chapter 7. This is a scandal. And so Paul has to prove, has to show that what I am saying is just not I'm saying this because I got hit with a rock in Lystra. But I have received this years before we ever got to Lystra, I have received this revelation from Christ directly in the third heaven. Remember in paradise, remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 he talks about that. In Galatians chapter 1 he talks about having received the gospel not from men but from God. And he is enumerating to us what this gospel is and how God has affected it into our lives and how we receive it and how we walk in it. And how this gospel maintains us all the way to the end. So, first of all, the argument presented, chapter 3, verses 27 to 31. And I'm going to go through it pretty quickly. Have your Bibles open or go through your notes and let's do it together. Verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? You know, if it's all God, then Paul says, What? What about boasting? It is excluded. By what law? What kind of law? By the law of works? No, by the law of faith. So boasting, nobody is able to boast before God that they are a believer. And nobody in the church should be able to, although we do it through various ways shouldn't boast before God in the way we're living and what we're doing and how many people were saved under my ministry and how well I did in this and how much I know. All of that is boasting and all of it is excluded. Why? Because every single thing we have from God from now on through all eternity is a gift and we cannot boast personally in a gift. All we can do is boast in the one who gives the gift. So Paul's presentation has just stripped man of any ability to boast in his ability or in his immorality. And let's be very careful and watch and ask God for a sensitivity to ourselves and how we're doing this because we do it regularly. We do it regularly in our general conversations about what we're doing and how we're doing and what happened yesterday and whom I talked to, you know, and when I was praying for you, it's not that we shouldn't share, but so much of the motive is about me. How many of you feel have sensed that in your own life? So much of it is about me. I'm the only one. Thank you. Uh, Gene said I was different, but that's right. The law of faith has stripped man of any boasting before God. Verses 28 to 31. Paul is concluding that justification by faith apart from the law applies to both Jews and Gentiles. So he makes that conclusion in those verses. I won't read those verses, but he makes the conclusion that both the circumcised and uncircumcised, the entire human race, is stand, the standing of everybody before God is on the same basis. God justifies all by His work received by faith. Nobody is different. Nobody is left out. Nobody extra is included. That's how God deals with all of us. Paul now proceeds, as he said that, and now he wraps up that end of the third chapter. Of course, when Paul is writing, he's not writing in a chapter. He's just writing and dictating, and he's just moving on here. So at the end of the third chapter, now Paul, as we get into chapter 4, proceeds to anchor his argument where? In Scripture. Where is the proof of what we're saying is true? Where is it? In my experience? Where is it? in Scripture. You see, please do not hang the proof of something on experience. When somebody says, I read a book about a little boy who died and went to heaven, and this and that, and I saw this, I saw that, and this is what I saw, and you come back and say, wow, oh, look at this. Don't do that. Do not do that. Hang the proof and the basis on Scripture. The best you can do with those kinds of stories is to say, I don't understand, but I am not going to use that in any way to justify or to share the gospel or whatever. The Word of God is completely sufficient, and God has not given us anything else except His Word as the way to preach the gospel. Amen? So let's not be deceived because Satan, as an angel of light, is deceiving people. Even believers into being disconnected from what the word says and what is happening. It is given unto man once to die, not to die and be resuscitated and to come back and to give all this. That's not believe the Bible, amen? amen. Can we just believe the Bible? Now, if you got your toes stepped on on that one, go to God. Don't ask me, and ask Him, Father. What is it about what He just said is bothering me? You see, what is it? So, verses one and two of chapter four. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has nothing to boast of about. He has nothing to boast about, but not before. Let me read that again. If Abraham was justified by his works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. You can boast of your works. You can boast about how many people get saved when you preach, you can boast about how many folks you've witnessed to. You can boast about how God, and we're talking about boasting. We're not talking about giving God the glory. There is a difference here. Obviously, there is a difference because we do need to be sharing what God is doing. But we're talking about boasting, and I think you feel the difference inside of you. Don't you feel the difference inside of you when you're talking about yourself? But hopefully, they're taking it as talking about God, but you know it's about yourself. We're not boasting before God. We're boasting before men. Now, who is Abraham? He starts talking about Abraham. Abraham. Who was Abraham? Abraham was a polytheist. you know what I mean by that? Poly means what? Many. Poly not a girl's name. Theist means what? Something about God. He is a worshiper of many gods and goddesses. They have statues all over their house. They do. They have these carvings all over the place. He is a polytheistic pagan. That's who Abraham is. We get the thought that Abraham was a man who lived in the earth, of the Chaldees. And every night, he'd go out and say, oh God, how wonderful you are. And he was living a good and faithful and decent life. And he was doing a few things wrong, but basically say, Abraham was a good man. And when God saw that Abraham was good, and when God saw that Abraham really was the kind of man God could use, God saved him. Don't you hear preaching like that? Haven't you heard preaching like that? God needed Abraham. Father, would you save, you know, Sean Payton? Because think of all the good he could do for the kingdom. What kind of a prayer is that? Save Sean Payton because you get the glory, but not because God needs him. Abraham isn't this kind of a guy. Abraham is a polytheist. He's a pagan who lived with his family in the era of the Chaldees. One who was suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness, as chapter 1 tells us. Abraham's life was a life of suppressing the truth of of, of righteousness in his own unrighteous behavior. Abraham was a nasty pagan. Okay, do we get that? You also remember that Abraham is also the father of the Jewish nation. Remember, the father of faith, the father of the faithful. Every good Jew traces their ancestry back to what man? Abraham. He is the one through whom God begins the nation of Israel. But you see, Abraham is so much more than this. He's not just that. He is the pattern of God's new faith-filled humanity. He is the pattern of those who are justified by God's grace through faith to be filling the earth with a knowledge of God so that the image of God would be fulfilled according to the mandates that we get in Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 to 28. Abraham now is God's man on earth through whom God will begin to move now much more specifically in a people to fulfill those Genesis mandates. Remember, do not disconnect what you're reading in the Word of God in Romans and Revelation and Hebrews and Nehemiah and Ezra, Leviticus, from the first three chapters of Genesis. Those three chapters, everything else is the outworking of those three chapters. And so what is God doing? he's moving to bring about what he had promised in Genesis chapter 3. And those of you who were in the class probably remember hopefully a whole lot of that. So that the earth would once again become God's garden of Eden. And in several places the word the land is associated and said to be God's garden of Eden. But again I took that out of my notes because I know if I do that we'll be another 10 minutes in that. So if you were to turn to Genesis chapter 12 1 through 3 and then verse 7 you would see God's call and his command to Abraham remember that's the first time we wind up in Genesis um, well not actually the first in the last few verses of chapter 11 and then God begins to call Abraham in chapter 12 so we see all of a sudden Abraham in chapter 12 the Lord appears to Abraham You remember Stephen talked about this in chapter 7 in his in his sermon the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was in Haran remember that. So God appears to Abraham. And as we look at these verses, let's notice that God's call has no connection to Abraham's ability or to his character. It's all grace. God is is not coming to Abraham because Abraham has called upon his name. Now do we get this? Do you see that? God is not coming to Abraham because Abraham first called upon God. God is not, if you would in the Old Testament sense, reborning Abraham because Abraham asked to be saved. That's not what's happening. God is unilaterally moving upon a polytheist who knows nothing of God, who cares nothing for God. Remember we saw that in Romans chapter 3? if you would excuse my French, who doesn't give a good damn about God. He just doesn't. Like everybody else who's unrighteous. Their concern is not about righteous, it's about something in and of themselves. And so he appears to this man. And in these verses, 1 to 3 and verse 7, and one of these are understood, so I elicit, there are seven I wills. And God says, I will, I will, I will. And this is a totally unilateral move of God to call a man to himself. This is God's pattern of how he saves the guilty. This is God's pattern of how he saves every man and woman on earth. God initiates it because of his own will, because of his own purpose, out of his own desire he does this because he wants to he's not obligated and he moves upon abraham and abraham responds by faith you understand this is a pattern that god follows throughout the scripture And all of this occurs some 430 years before the law. So it has nothing to do with Abraham's obedience to the law. It has nothing to to do with Abraham is circumcised. It has nothing to do with Abraham is is doing this or doing that. It's just God, God, God. Can we get that? Why are we saved today? God, God, God. And even the faith that we have, which we'll see one day, is God's gift to us. So I can't even boast about, yeah, well, I received Christ. I can't even boast about that because that was given to me as a gift, too. You see that in Ephesians chapter 2, remember, 8 and 9. Now the Lord said to Abraham, all of a sudden, you know, think of Abraham. and Well, I'm going too slow here. Think of Abraham. He's in his tent, minding his own business. He's just doing his stuff. And all of a sudden, some kind of way, the Lord appeared to him. Now, Gordon, we don't know how that happened. We don't know what it was. All of a sudden, he's appeared to Abraham. And he says to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Some way Abraham knows this is God Almighty that I will show you and I will make you a great nation. You see, great nation, that mandate, fill the earth, multiply, and I will bless you and I will, it's understood, make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To your seed, remember verse 7, the seed, the seed of the woman and your nation, I will give this land. So here you see God moving. God is doing a great and holy work. What's Abraham's response? Okay. Okay. That's his response. I mean, how do we know his response was okay? Look at verse 4. So Abraham went. Now, come on, be truthful. How will I get through this? Be truthful. How many of you, come on, let's be truthful. I wrestle with this. How many of you think there has to be more than okay? Thank you, Bob, for raising your hand. There has to be more than okay. I mean, Frank, it can't be simply just that. It can't be just that. How many of you are? Come on. Come on, let's be truthful. There has to be more to it than okay. Our flesh doesn't like it. It's so antithetical to our flesh's propensity to work, to gain, to earn, to merit, to be something. It's so destructive to pride. Okay. That's it? That's it? You see, this okay was not just a mental okay. This was a heart, emotion, feeling, appreciation, affection, receiving. You said it. I see you. You said it. Yes! And Abraham, if you would, is swept off his feet by the Holy Spirit. If you want to read the understanding of this theologically, Hebrews eleven eight 8 through 10 gives you that background. You can read that by faith, by faith. For what does the Scripture say, verse 3? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Now that is one of the most significant statements in all of the Bible. You might want to look up how many times that statement is repeated in the New Testament. I'm not going to tell you. It's repeated several times. For Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is the heart. This is the heart. Well, what scripture is Paul referring to? Well, what is he getting this? Well, when you go to Genesis 15, 1 through 18, what is happening is. The word of the Lord appears to Abraham. God appears to Abraham. And he says to Abraham, fear not, Abraham. I'm your shield, your reward, and your your reward shall be very great. Now, why does he say fear not? Because you see, Genesis 15 is not only several chapters later from Genesis 12 when the Lord said, I'm going to give you, you know, make you a great nation. Therefore, you have to have a child. Remember, by that time in Genesis 12, Sarah hasn't conceived. By Genesis 15, Sarah is still barren. And so what is the concern here? Abraham's trying to figure out how is God going to do this? And as the time wears on, Abraham is not disbelieving God, but he doesn't understand how God is going to do it. There is lack of understanding, and that's fine. That's fine. And so the Lord understands and knows obviously Abraham needs to be encouraged. So he comes back to Abraham, don't be worried. I am your shield. I am. I am. Remember the great I am that we see in the burning bush. I am. All you need, look to me. Continue to trust me. Continue to walk with me. I'm going to make it so. And Abraham said, but Lord, what will you give me? For I continue to be childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. In other words, can I make Eleazar? Can I adopt him? And Abraham said, behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Well, maybe somebody I will adopt. And the word of the Lord came to me. No, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Okay, someone from his own body. And he brought him outside. You know, and, and how do I know? How do I know? I need some assurance. I need some assurance. I trust you. I know you can, but I need some assurance. It's okay to ask God for assurance. He knows that we're weak. We need assurance in building up. We need encouragement. It's good. That's the way we are because we're the flesh. And so he continually delights in doing that. Ask God for assurance. Ask God for help. Ask God for encouragement. Ask God for elucidation. Ask God for revelation. Always do that. Why? Because we need it. Because we need it. There's not a soul in here doesn't need that. We need it. Continually go to God. He loves that. Don't you love your children to come to you and say, Mama, Daddy, will you help me with this? Would you help me with that? We like that. Hopefully we like that. And the Lord took him outside and he said, You want to know something about my ability? Look at the stars. You want to know if I'm able? Look at the stars. You see, Abraham was trying to figure out how is God going to do this? He's not looking for Proof that God's gonna do it. He's just concerned. How is it gonna happen? I don't get it. I'm walking by faith. I know it's true. I know God is at work, but I need just some encouragement, some elucidation here. And when Abraham looked up in verse six, what does it say? Fifteen six of Genesis, that's where it is. Abraham what? Believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. When he looked at the stars, he said, The one who made the heavens and the earth can certainly produce in me a son. Right? You see, again, he believed God. He believed God. In believing God, Abraham was embracing God's blessing. He was embracing God's truth. He was embracing who God is in himself. That was faith. This believing an invisible and unknown God was a real miracle. I mean, this, you know, get into the time frame. This is crazy. It's crazy. You believe in one God? It's crazy. This is not that kind of a time period. And still, it remains crazy to the natural man. It's a major miracle God has done here. But what was Abraham really believing? He's believing the promise of God I'm going to make your nation, I'm going to bless the world through you. I'm going to give you a son. People are going to bless you. Those who don't bless you are going to be in trouble. You know, all of this, I'm going to give you the land. All of this. Well, what was God saying here? If you look at Galatians 3:8, here's what Paul says concerning this issue of Abraham believing God. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham. You see, in the context, in the content of what God was promising was the gospel, although the gospel had not been revealed in those days in the Old Testament as it is today. But it's the same gospel. This was the same case with everyone in the Old Testament era who believed God. Thus, believing the gospel has always been God's way of justifying. In this promise God was saying, I'm going to bring it about, trust me. God knowing how he would bring it about, details that he would build on and give later as we travel through history, bringing it to the fruition at the cross. But God giving it to them, even in that restricted way, is simply saying, trust me. And he's trusting him. He's trusting him. What is Abraham believing The gospel. How are people in the Old Testament saved? By the gospel. Well, how can they be saved by the gospel because they didn't hear the name of Jesus? The name of Jesus or the person of Christ and the work of God in Christ is in those promises. It's just veiled until the New Testament. And so when they trusted the promises, they were trusting that which the promises spoke of, even though they didn't have all the understanding. Therefore, they were saved or justified. Now, today it's different we have the unveiled gospel now. We have the full revelation that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. So now today when we share the gospel, if we do so apart from announcing Jesus and who he is and what he's done, that is no longer what? The gospel. It is no longer the gospel. Verses four to five. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due and to the one who does not work but trusts him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. So Paul is talking about works and a gift. So Paul summarizes, a person is declared righteous only by God's gratuitous judicial declaration as a gift received by faith. Why are people justified? Because God decides whom he will justify, and he decides whom he will call into his kingdom, because of that justification, and he moves on those people with the declaration, the revelation of the gospel, and when he does that, he is touching their hearts, remember in Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27, and those people now are given the gift of faith infused in them, and their response is yes. Yes. Whom God is saving, they will be saved whom God is saving, they will be saved. You believe this? Yes. Because you see, God is not saving someone and hoping with his fingers crossed that they receive that salvation by faith. I'm going to preach Jesus, and I just hope to goodness, Donnie, that you receive it by faith. We may be having our fingers crossed when we share the gospel, If you are, uncross them. And know this, as you share the gospel, when you are sharing the gospel to someone whom God is saving, that person at that point or another point, the timing is God's, will be saved. Amen? The whole thing is God's. I cannot boast. I cannot boast. A gift is received. It's not earned. We just gave our grandson Jonathan, who turned 17 last week, Uh, some gifts last night he didn't come to us and said now that i'm 17 would you give me a gift right i'll give you a gift if you ask for it how many of you know you don't want that from your children but how many of us still think in order to get to get the gift of eternal life we have to ask god isn't it ingrained in us how many of us share that Well, if you want to be saved, you have to ask Jesus to save you. You have to ask God, Mike, if you want to be saved. Because once you ask God, then then God will give it to you. But if you don't ask him, Joe, he's going to hold it back. That's not what he says here. This is a gift given. And then it's a gift received. Because everyone to whom God gives this gift, they do receive it by faith it begins to break down our work participation. Do you see that? That if only you could teach the gospel better, preach the gospel better, if only you could live better, if only you could whatever better, then more people would be saved. We think this. We certainly should be preaching better and teaching better and knowing the Word better, but that is not the issue. The issue is this is God's work. Amen? From beginning till Almost the end, and then if you don't, man, you ain't coming in. You're going to hell because you didn't say it right. We hear these things, and we we get subjected to these things, but they're not in the Bible. Can we be released today into the freedom of the power of God's will and work? Amen? Can we be freed to be into that? In verses 6 to 8, Paul's moving on in chapter 4, and he's talked about David. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And he's quoting from Psalm 32 here. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not count his sin. You remember he's using David as a proof. And David in chapter uh, 32 of Psalms, Psalm 32, these two verses is talking about God forgiving and ca- not counting and covering his sin. What sin? Well you'd have to go back into 2 Samuel chapter 11 and you see the David's sin with Bathsheba. Remember the sin of adultery and then the sin of mor- uh, murder because he tries, he puts Uriah, Bathsheba, He was husband in the uh, place, you know, go home and and have a nice evening with your wife. and, And hopefully, you know, after that's finished, you go back to war and everybody thinks, well, of course, it's Uriah's child. But that didn't work. Uriah didn't go for that. So David gives a command, put him on the front line the next day or whenever, Uriah's dead. It's just like David killed him. So murder and adultery. Murder and adultery. This is God's man. This is God's man. Remember David? Remember who David is? So what happens when we sin? What happens when we sin? The the same thing happens when we sin as happened before we were even saved. How does God deal with my sin today? after I'm saved, I'm still sinning. How does God deal with it today? The same way He dealt with it before I was saved. Are you getting this? God hasn't changed His way of dealing with me now that I am saved. He doesn't now save me and now put me onto a different track causing me now to be able to walk in such a way that if I'm not correct in everything He comes against me in a different way. He deals with me. He relates to me. He relates to us. He deals with us today after we're saved and tomorrow and continuing the same way he did before we were even saved on the basis of grace through faith. You see, how could David say he got cleared? What work did David do to clear himself? What work did David do to merit forgiveness? He didn't do a doggone thing as far as his own meritorious work. He walked in faith trusting God's goodness and grace. Look at what he says in Psalm 32. He explains why he could depend upon God's mercy rather than doing something to make up for his guilt. Did you hear that? He explains why he can depend upon God's mercy rather than doing something to make up for his guilt. How many of us, and you don't have to raise your hand, how many of us so often try to make up for our guilt. Now, come on. You don't have to raise your hand, but come on. Let's face it. What do we say? This word is about us today. It's just not a theoretical thing about those people years ago. It's about me. What happens in my heart when I sin? I feel immediately I have to do something to make it right. There's nothing I can do by working a work of merit or earning something that I can make it right. I do what David does. What is that? Look at it. Whose lawless deeds are forgiven and they're covered. Remember those two comments. David remembered the sacrificial death of another for his sin. He was counted as not guilty, acquitted. He was justified. He remembered Leviticus 15. I'm sorry, 16, 15 to 30, 22, about the animals. Remember this goat that died, slitting throat, and then the other goat that was sent out into the wilderness, verse 15, the scapegoat. He remembered, there another one has died to cover and to forgive my sin. That's the first thing. Remember 1 Peter 2 24, Jesus himself bore our sin, took it away. Then, secondly, whose sin the Lord will not take into account. David, remember what Exodus 12, 13 says, when I see the blood, I will pass over. Remember Jeremiah 31, 31. I'm sorry. Uh, come on, thirty one thirty four. The Lord says, I will remember your sin no more. God doesn't forget sin. I've heard people say, when God looks at you, He doesn't see your sin anymore. That's dash. That's dash. I mean, how can Paul say in 2 Corinthians 10, when we all stand before the Lord, we shall, what, be evaluated judge according to the deeds done in the body? How is God going to do that, Laura, if he doesn't know what you're doing? Uh, Could you remind me, Laura? Certainly he knows what. He sees everything we're doing. He hears every thought, every feeling. But the good news is he sees them redemptively, Everyone having already and forever been paid for and washed away as to its guilt and penalty in the blood of Christ. Amen? Therefore, when he sees us, he no longer views us, relates to us, feels about us as if or in relation to our sin, but only in relation to we or his beloved children. Correct? Correct? Is there any motivation for repenting, confessing, and repenting? If that isn't, we don't have anything going for us. So I've said before, why do I confess my sin and repent, change my mind about this dastardly deed I just did? Why do I repent? Not in order to be forgiven, but because I stand forgiven because, before a God who has declared me as righteous forever in his Son, and you too. Now, that's hard to swallow, isn't it? Because we still got this stuff. I need to do a little more. If I had only done this. uh, There are certainly issues of transformation and maturity involved here. But we're talking about meritorious work as opposed to God's good work of grace. You see, God now will relate to David and to us continually and forever as if we had never sinned. He will relate to us on the basis of his mercy at the cross. Aren't you glad? This is how God relates to us, because of the cross. Hopefully, today you begin to feel the breaking of the chains of deception. You see, no more guilt. Well, what happened when I sin? I feel guilty jesus has paid the guilt yes there is shame yes there is shame for a believer who sins but that shame is to identify that sin as shameful shameful before a holy god and encourage us and motivate us to say father i have sinned move upon me in a repentant way so i my mind will be changed about this sin amen Thank you, Father, for the forgiveness which I have in Christ. Don't go begging God for anything. Don't you go begging God. Don't you do that. You deal with the issue, you get up, and you continue to walk. The devil loves you to grovel and beg God. The devil loves you to grovel and beg God. Some of you, this is new, don't anymore grovel and beg God. Deal with the issue. I did it. I'm wrong. Move upon me in the power of repentance that I will change my mind and not succumb to this again. Thank you for the forgiveness. I'm moving on in Christ. Devil, I'm getting up and I'm coming back. Right? Don't grovel. Don't beg. 9 to 10. And this, is this blessing then only for the circumcised? And he deals with those, you know, is it only for the circumcised? No. How was it counted to him? It was counted to him before he was circumcised. So Paul, again, let me sum up these last verses. Paul, again, is showing that all of this work of God has nothing to do with either meritorious work or it has nothing to do with religious observance. It has everything to do with God's decision to bless those who are unrighteous by judicially declaring them as righteous through the blood of Christ Christ his death and his resurrection and he gives that to everyone whom he loves on the basis of his grace alone received by faith alone and in that that person no matter who he or she has been or no matter who he or she will do that person is declared by god almighty the judge of heaven and earth as forever righteous in christ That's the only way we can live in freedom and enjoy. Otherwise, you better be as scared as hell about God. We didn't say don't reverence and fear God, but I think you get the context. The last verses here, 13 to 17, I will summarize it this way Faith is valueless, the promise is worthless, and God's wrath comes upon man if keeping the law is the way it is. If keeping the law, when we say the law, we not only mean the Ten Commandments, whatever code you have, faith is valueless, the promise is what? Worthless, and God's wrath comes upon us. 18 to 22, Abraham's getting old, but he still hangs on to God. He still hangs on to God. You may want to travel to chapter 17 of Genesis and see what happens there. You see, God says, I will do it. The natural experience has said, it ain't going to happen. And Abraham stands and says, God has promised. Now, we're talking about God's promise. We're not talking about presumption and creating a promise that God hasn't given you. Don't do that. We're talking about God's promise. There are promises that God has made to us. We can stand on them no matter what. See, for 25 years, Abraham has trusted God. 25 years. And verse 21 of that section, what does he say? Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Then at the end, he counted it to him as righteousness. Does this just apply to Abraham? What does the Bible say? We, by faith, you'd have to read Galatians to see some of this. We, by faith of who? Abraham's children. The way God dealt with Abraham, the way He dealt with Noah, the way He dealt with David, the way He dealt with Methuselah, the way He dealt with Ezra and Nehemiah, the way He dealt with uh, 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 any of the uh, prophets, the way He dealt with the woman at the well, the way He dealt with Mary Magdalene, the way He dealt with the Apostle Paul, He deals with all of us the same way. Amen? All of us the same way. Next week we'll get into chapter 5 and we'll begin to look at some of the glorious results of this great work of God. Thank you.